Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson, his wife Carlotta, and their daughter Hannah Miller, this program will help you understand that human beings are more than just physiology, that for people there's more than just diagnosis and treatment, and that in life there's more than just medicine for a cure. This is More Than Medicine, and the doctor is in. Hello, welcome to More Than Medicine. I'm Carlotta Jackson, and I am sitting here with my husband, Dr. Robert Jackson, who will give a message called, well, it's on the effective seed planter, but what are the characteristics of the effective seed planter? My husband was privileged to once again give a series of messages at a local church near us, about what it means to be a seed planter. And of course, you and I cannot save people. Only God can do that. But we are charged with planting the seed, the planting of the seed of the gospel, and praying that it falls on fertile soil. Right, Robert? That's correct. You know, the time-honored phrase is being a soul winner. But really, the Holy Spirit is the one who wins souls. Our responsibility is planting the seed of the gospel. And so today, I'd like to talk about two primary characteristics of an effective seed planter. I wrote a book entitled uh, The Truth About Seed Planting, and there are multiple chapters in that book that talk about characteristics of an effective seed planter. So today, I'm just going to talk about two, maybe three, if time permits. And the first one I'd like to share with us is that an effective seed planter must be convinced that there is no plan B. There is no alternative other than being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, the Pharisees have just reproved Peter for preaching the gospel. And Peter looks at them and says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And of course, he's talking about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll share a story with you. Many years ago, when I was graduating from medical school, my girlfriend at that time, who had just become my fiancé the day before, we had gone to my one of my uncles who had a Model A Ford, and I'd asked him if we could borrow that Model A Ford so that I could drive my fiancé, Miss Carlotta, around my hometown of Manning, South Carolina. Of course, he agreed, and so we set out, and it was a springtime day, and the flowers were blooming, and it was a beautiful day. Now, you have to understand that there's only 3,500 folks live in my hometown of Manning, so it's quite small, and it only took us about 15 minutes to explore all of the main roads in my little town of Manning. So in 15 minutes, we were back at my uncle's home, and my aunt invited us in to drink a little sweet tea. Well, Carlotta had just returned from two years as a missionary in the Middle East. She had worked at the Baptist Hospital in the Gaza Strip, El Mustashvel Marmadani Fi Gaza, the Baptist Hospital in Gaza. She had been a nurse there. She had worked in the hospital. She had taught nursing to the Muslim and Greek Orthodox students there. And she'd had a delightful experience. 
Well, she had come home just in time to see me graduate from medical school. So we sat down and we talked with my aunt and uncle and shared with them some of her experiences there in the Middle East. And we also shared our plans, hopefully, to eventually go overseas as medical missionaries. Well, we didn't know it at the time, but those plans never materialized because of some medical problems of my own. But as we were talking with my aunt and uncle, my uncle looked at me and listened politely, and then he interrupted me, and he said this. He says, well, Rabbi, don't you think that God has a plan for all those folks overseas who never hear about Jesus, that somehow they're going to get to go to heaven anyway? Well, I looked at my uncle this uncle who had carried me to Sunday school many Sunday mornings when my father, who was a family doctor, had been away at the hospital seeing patients, and he had picked me and my sister up and carried us to Sunday school and taken us to church. This very uncle who'd been a deacon and a Sunday school teacher in a Baptist church, he looks at me and says, don't you think that God has a, a plan somehow that all these folks would somehow get to heaven anyway, even if they never hear about Jesus. And I looked at him and I said, no, 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 a thousand times no. Now, really, I didn't say that to my uncle. I thought it, but I didn't say it. I had too much respect for my uncle. But I did look at him and say, that's why we send missionaries overseas. That's why Miss Carlotta just spent two years in Gaza, because we don't believe that there is any alternative provision. There is no plan B. Peter was right when he told the Pharisees that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus was speaking the truth when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And he proved the truthfulness of that statement by the resurrection from the dead. And you see, we have to be convinced in our heart of hearts that there is no plan B, that there is no other alternative provision. Otherwise, we will never be effective seed planters. Now, don't be hard on my uncle. Barna did a survey a few years back of evangelicals, not just people on the street, but evangelicals. And believe it or not, 64% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. Not Christian people, but all people. The statement is, heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. And believe it or not, 64% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. The only problem is that is not a biblical statement. It does not agree with the scriptures, 
which tells us that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Theologians call that universalism, the belief that God is love and he will ultimately save everybody. Now, the great evangelist Charles Wesley used to say that if we could spend just five minutes in hell, we would all be aggressive evangelist. Now, you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus told that parable, and he told how the rich man, when he ended up in hell, that he raised up his eyes, and he saw Father Abraham, and he said to him, please just dip your finger in a little water so that you can cool my tongue, because I am in torment in this place. And Father Abraham said to him that nothing of the sort could be done because between you and me there is a great chasm fixed and nobody can pass from here to there or from there to here. And this man suddenly was converted into an evangelist and he said to Father Abraham, well, please allow me to go and warn my brothers that they may not come here. And again, he reminds him that there's a great chasm fixed and, and you cannot cross from there to warn your brothers. And then becoming an even greater evangelist or missionary, he pleads with Father Abraham and he says, well, please send someone to warn my brothers that they may not come to this terrible place. You see, this man had only been in hell, in torment for less than a day, and he's already converted into an evangelist, a missionary, and begging Father Abraham to send someone to warn his brothers. Charles Wesley was right. If we could spend only five minutes in hell, we would all become aggressive evangelists. If we would only be convinced in our heart of hearts that there is no plan B. And if we would only understand the terrible torment that exists in hell, all of us would be aggressive and assertive seed planters. Now get this. If you and I are not convinced in our hearts that the spiritually lost are really lost without God and without hope of salvation, then we will never be assertive evangelists among our family and friends who are spiritually dead. More than that, we will certainly not take great pains to fulfill the Great Commission in order to reach people we don't even know in the far-flung parts of the world. I mean, what would be my motivation if I'm not even convinced that unregenerate people groups really are in peril of eternal condemnation. If I have a sneaking suspicion that God has a different plan for those folks, why even bother? You see, if I think that God has a plan for them, an alternative provision, a plan B, why would I give my money? Why would I support missionaries? 
Why would I even go to other countries if somehow, like my uncle believed, those folks are going to be saved anyway? In fact, why would I want to put their souls in eternal jeopardy by sharing the gospel with them? Because you see, they may reject the gospel and then be eternally condemned. That wouldn't be fair to them because you see, God has a special plan for them. He's going to save them anyway. Why would I want to put their souls in eternal jeopardy by sharing the gospel with them and giving them an opportunity to reject the gospel? That would not make any sense at all. It would not be congruent with the gospel. It wouldn't be consistent with the Great Commission, which challenges us to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Some years ago, I was sharing with one of the men in my own church, telling him about our plans to go to India to share the gospel there. Do you realize that there are over 3,000 unreached, unevangelized ethnic groups in India alone? And I was sharing with him that we had plans to go to Manipur, Manipur as it's pronounced, where we were helping a church there to regain their evangelistic focus. That church has a, a school with over a hundred children attending that school. And we've been sharing the gospel with the students in that school. Now, why would we do that? Because we are convinced that there is no plan B, no other alternative option for the people in that community and the people in that school, the children in that school, to be saved apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I was sharing with this gentleman, he puts his hand up and he says, stop. And he looks at me and he says, I've lost nothing in India. Well, thinking that I misunderstood him, I pressed on. With all of my enthusiasm and excitement, I continued to share with him our plans to help this church regain their evangelistic fervor and help share the gospel with all these children in this school. And he one more time put his hand up and said, I've lost nothing in India. And I was honestly shocked and brokenhearted that this man had no burden for lost people living in India. But our church as a whole is not like that individual man. We are committed to reaching an unreached people group, an unevangelized people group in Manipur. And we send people there as often as we can. And we've been saddened by the COVID pandemic that has prevented us from going there for the last year and a half. And I'm here to tell you that what is true in India, what is true in Manipur, is also true in our home county where I live in Spartanburg, South Carolina. There are people here who are spiritually dead, spiritually bound, spiritually blind, who are without God and without hope in this world, and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no alternative for them. And if people like you and me do not share with them the good news of the gospel, they will spend an eternity separated away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you and I are not convinced 
of that truth that there is no plan B, no other alternative, no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved, then I submit to you very respectfully that you and I will never be effective seed planters unless we are convinced that Jesus alone can save. Now, the second point that I want to make today is that we must be convinced that Jesus can meet every need of the human heart. We must be convinced of the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul spoke to the Roman church and he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. We have to be convinced that there is power in the gospel message. There is power in the name of Jesus and there is power in the blood of Jesus. Now I'll share another story with you. The last time I was in India, I was privileged to meet a pastor there who shared with me and my wife and several other of us that were on a mission trip that he was walking through the marketplace in his small town. There were a group of Christians standing in a circle and talking, and as he walked by them, he heard them speak the name of Jesus. He told us that he had never heard the name of Jesus previously. But when he heard them speak the name of Jesus, that he had an overwhelming conviction of his sin, and he had an overwhelming conviction that Jesus could save him from his sin. He told us that he repented of his sin on the spot. He asked Jesus to save him from his sin, and he immediately walked up to this group of people asked them for more information and told them that he had been saved from his sin on the spot. Well, these Christians were incredulous. I have to be honest, I was incredulous as well. So I interrogated him further and I said, Sir, do you mean to tell me that you had never heard of Jesus before that day? And he said, Honestly, I had never heard the name. And I said, Do you mean to tell me that you were convicted of your sin, and you were saved on the spot without any additional information. And he said, I'm here to tell you that that is the honest truth. I was saved simply by hearing the name of Jesus. And I walked up to that circle of people, and I announced to them that I had become a believer in that name, and I needed to know more information about who is Jesus. Well, I was overwhelmed, and all of us in that circle looked at each other, and we began to shout and praise the name of the Lord, and that man began to praise the name of the Lord with us, and we just had a shouting session right there on the spot, but I'm telling you that there's power in the gospel, there's power in the name of Jesus, and there's power in the blood of Jesus to transform people's lives. And you and I must be convinced of that if we're going to be effective seed planters. Now, let me share another story with you. Back in the, the late 80s, a young man came into my office, and he was covered with weeping sores from his neck all the way down to his feet. They were weeping so badly that it was weeping through his clothes. I noticed that he had large lymph nodes under his neck under his chin, 
and, and I knew immediately what his problem was, but being polite, I asked him a few questions. And I asked him if he'd ever had a blood transfusion. He said no. And eventually I got around to asking him uh, if he'd ever had sex with other men. And he looked at the floor and he scuffed the carpet with his shoe. And then he said, yes, sir, I have. And back then we, we called the problem AIDS, not HIV like we do today. And I asked him if he'd ever had an AIDS test, and he said no. And I said, would you mind if I administered an AIDS blood test? And he said, sir, I wish you would. So I did, and I gave him some antibiotic and told him to come back in a week. When he came back in a week, most of the sores had, had healed, but he still had these large lymph nodes in his neck, and unfortunately his AIDS test was positive. Well, when I told him that his test was positive, he began to weep uncontrollably. And understandably so, because back then there was no good therapy for HIV. Well, I prayed over the young man, and then I looked at him, and I told him that Jesus can meet the need of your life. I said, I, I'm sorry, son, I, I can't help you medically. I'm going to send you to an infectious disease doctor, but unfortunately, he's not going to be able to do much for you either. And that was true back at that time. There were not very good medications available to treat HIV at that time. But I said, I want you to know that Jesus can meet the need of your heart. And you need to pray and talk to Jesus about your situation and about your spiritual need. And he looked at me and he said, Doctor, that's what my grandmother's been telling me. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, well, your grandmother's a wise woman. You need to listen to her. And I challenged him to go home and get on his knees and pray and ask Jesus to deal with the sin issue in his life. Well, he left, and about a month later, he came back to see me. And when I opened the door, he jumped up, and with a great big smile, he gave me a big hug and just danced me around in a circle. And I said, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? And he says, Dr. Jackson, I want you to know that I prayed to receive Jesus Christ. And I told my friend boy he had to leave. And I'm now living with my grandmother. I joined the church. I've been baptized and I'm singing in the choir. And I want to thank you for pointing me to Jesus because he's completely changed my life. Well, I followed him along for about two years. And I want you to know that his whole life was completely transformed. He was restored to fellowship with his family. He was restored to fellowship with his local church. It did not change the outcome of his disease because two years later, I read his obituary in the newspaper. But I'm here to tell you that it also changed his eternal destiny. But here's the question that I want to ask you. Do you have the ability to look a young person in the eye just like him without blinking or looking away and unapologetically say to him, Jesus can meet your need? Could you say that to an unwed pregnant teenage girl? Could you say that to the chronically unemployed alcoholic or drug addict? Can you say that to the family who has a bipolar father who shows up at your church every Wednesday night asking for a handout? Can you say that to the irregular people in your life who seem to be just like a black hole and every time you're around them they just suck all the vitality out of you? You must understand, brothers and sisters, that you and I are the priest that stands as a counselor, an advisor, an intercessor at the intersection between God's mercy and their human misery. 
What did Jesus tell his disciples when they were confronted with 5,000 hot, hungry, irritable, and angry people? The disciples whispered to Jesus, Lord, send them away. But Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you feed them. The disciples' solution was to send them away. Just like you and me, sometimes our solution is just to walk on the other side of the street, look the other way, and pretend those people don't exist. But Jesus, before he proved to his disciples that he was enough, and that he could meet the needs of 5,000 hungry people with a little bit of fish and bread that they had without depleting their resources and still giving them 12 bags of leftovers, Jesus said to them, You feed them. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that true ministry grows out of Christian service. True evangelistic opportunities grow out of Christian ministry. And I know that ministry is messy. Unless you and I are willing to get in the mud, root, hog, or die with people like the alcoholics, the drug addicts, the unwed teenagers, the folks in our lives who have psychiatric problems, we're not going to be able to minister to them in a way that's meaningful. And unless you and I are willing to look them in the eye without blinking or looking away and unapologetically say to them, Jesus can meet your need, we're not going to be effective seed planters. Unless we are convinced in our heart of hearts that Jesus is enough and that he can meet every need of the human heart, I promise you'll look away, you'll blink, and you'll feel overwhelmed by the circumstances of their life. And you will not accept the challenge or seize the opportunity, and you will not be an effective seed planter. Ultimately, it boils down to your faith in what Jesus can do through you and your congregation. It boils down to your faith in the power of the gospel to transform their lives. Yes, ministry is messy, but it's also fulfilling. Isn't that what Jesus told the disciples when they came back and saw him talking to the woman at the well? He said, listen, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He, it was so satisfying to him to minister to that woman, and the same thing's true to you and me. But it also gives us credibility, because for Every one of the people that we minister to, the poor, the prisoners, the ex-cons, the folks that are mentally ill or handicapped, the aged, the foster children, every one of them has other family members. And when they see us ministering to their friends and families in the spirit, it gives us credibility. And they're going to be willing to listen to us when we look at them and say, well, tell me about your spiritual life. And then we can walk through an open door and share the gospel with them. You see, it allows us to be an effective seed planter. Let me encourage you to get a copy of my book. It's entitled, The Truth About Seed Planting. The Family Doctor Speaks, The Truth About Seed Planting. I think you'll find it very interesting, informative, 
encouraging and challenging. And you can find it on uh, Amazon. You can find it on Barnes and Noble. And you can also look at Jackson Family Ministry and send us a text and we'll send you one through the mail. Thank you for listening to More Than Medicine. Thank you for listening to today's edition of More Than Medicine. You can follow Jackson Family Ministry on Facebook, Instagram, and on their website. Be sure to contact them via jacksonfamilyministry at gmail.com for speaking engagements and for book information. Join us next time for more than medicine.